Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where you are. I'm Barbara Peters from the Poison Pen in Scottsdale, Arizona. And tonight I am talking to Matt Witten, who, even though you might think he would be in California, is apparently in Boston, bracing for a blizzard. Wow. However, the good news is he has family there. So even if the book event doesn't go on, presumably the family thing is really worth doing. This has been the most bizarre winter. I mean, I'm not surprised about snow in Boston. I'm really surprised that we had a freeze in Scottsdale last night at the end of January. Yes, and in Los Angeles, we had more rain than we've had since I don't know when, and that's been pretty insane also. It has been. We've had in Phoenix, as I am told, more rain since August than in Seattle, which, you know, it's just a total reversal. I know, it's so weird. But anyway, we're here to talk about Killer Story, which is Matt's most recent novel. I believe that last time we spoke it was about the necklace, wasn't it? That's right. Yep. Um, but I should give you a bio because Matt has a really interesting bio. I'm just going to read it off the back of the book, but still. A graduate of Amherst and Brandeis Universities, he's a TV writer, novelist, playwright, and screenwriter. So we're going to talk about the differences between writing books and writing all this other stuff. His television writing includes House, Pretty Little Liars, Law and Order. His TV scripts have been nominated for an Emmy and two Eggers which is, for those of you who don't know, Mystery's version of the Oscars. Um, and he's written four mystery novels, winning a Malice Domestic Award for Best Debut Novel. He's also written stage plays and for national magazines. Wow, so you just started leading a writer's life. That's right. Yeah, I started out as a playwright and then got into novel writing and somehow wound up in Hollywood and, and got into novel writing again. So yeah, it's been a lot of stuff. So why don't we talk about, you know, because I had a really interesting conversation the other day about writing for different age groups. I think people who watch these programs are interested in the writing process. And Kate, Alice, um, was talking about YA novels, young, you know, even younger child and then adult novels and what, what, how you approach it differently. I thought it would be language, but she says that it really is story that the conception of story for a young adult novel would be different than, than it was for her first adult thriller. So do you find that, um, you know, your adult, your novels involve in adult novels, right? Yes, I did write for Pretty Little Liars, which it was the main audience was a teenage girl. So they would often watch, watch it with their moms. And there were women, you know, up into their thirties watching it. But uh, the thing I've noticed from uh, studying young adult literature and from writing that, is that um, these books and, and, and TV shows are more open with the feelings. People come right out with them. There's not so much you know, hiding and everything's under. And uh, I really appreciate that about them. I, I, thought, well, I thought that was good for my writing in particular, just to have characters that are totally out there. And um, I think it's fun to read that, uh, so yeah. Well, you know, oftentimes I get books or advanced reading copies, which is what this is. This is not the finished book, but the one that the publisher sent me to look at. Um, and they will have like, you know, young adult or an age range or something. But I don't, you know, I think there's plenty of young adult fiction that adults can read with really enjoyment. I could still read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for example, and love it. And I think it was intended, at least I, I might be wrong, but I think it was intended for a younger audience. Yeah, I, I really like it when, when books and TV shows uh, treat uh, young people with respect. So the head writer or one of the two co-head writers on Pretty Little Liars, uh, Marlene King, always emphasized that we don't think of it as just some you know dumb kid show or something. We treat our audience with respect. And that show 
had a number of circumstances in it that were a little out there. Uh, however, the girl's reaction, the four girls' reaction to these unusual circumstances was, was always very grounded in character, very grounded in real life, the way you know, these kids would actually you know, react to these circumstances. So uh, yes, yeah, so that's what I noticed and that's what I admired about that show in particular. Yeah, you made an excellent point and really thought about is that adults are more trained and, you know, I, I can hardly say politeness anymore in our current society, but let's say restraint, artifice, um, concealing, you know, just being, well, being polite. Um, and whereas teenagers have far fewer um, reins, you know, that um, on their on their emotions and on their reactions and so forth, they're a lot more primal. <laughs> right. They're trying things out to find out what they can do and what they can't do and what works and what doesn't. And that's what they should be doing. That's what they're that's what they should be doing at that stage in life. So when you began writing, what what were your first, you know, did you write stories? Did you write books? I mean, you've obviously managed to be a success in several different forms of storytelling. Well, when I was in second grade, I wrote poems about how the Baltimore Orioles were going to defeat the hated New York Yankees. Um, <laughs> good for you. I was in <laughs> Chicago, but we had similar thoughts. <laughs> okay, good. Excellent. Uh, yay, Cubs. And, yes. um, and then when I was in 10th grade, uh, my high school drama teacher, uh, I had a crush on her, and she suggested that I write a play. And so I did, and it was performed at the local uh, church for a uh, United Methodist Women's uh, Church group, and I got hooked. And I kept writing plays. It's what I love doing. And then when I hit my uh, 30s, I started to realize that my favorite form of, um, of cultural entertainment wasn't so much going to see a play. It was more um, lying back on my sofa and having a cup of tea and reading a, uh, a, a funny mystery or an amateur sleuth mystery. That was my favorite genre at the time. So I thought, well, why don't I try uh, writing them? Um, so I did, and it was you know, a tremendous joy. I wrote four of them, and I would have kept going, except through some odd set of circumstances, uh, I got the call to come out to Hollywood, literally a phone call, hmm. and um, to write for uh, Law & Order, which I did for three years. And okay. I kept writing t TV for the next um, 20 years. I mean, I still am, and uh, wrote a movie that got made. Uh, I'll have to put that in my, in my bio. I realized that never made it in there. And um, so, and, and, you know, I enjoyed that a lot, but in the last um, three or four years, I really realized that I really wanted to write something that totally came from my heart. You know, when you write for TV, um, it's, it's, it's fun and it's great in a lot of ways. You get a lot of recognition, a lot of money, and more importantly, you collaborate with some really good people and have some really great experiences and you learn about writing and it's very interesting. Um, but I never exactly wrote something that came from my heart that I would necessarily, you know, watch myself on a Saturday night. Um, and uh, so, you know, I wrote some episodes I was proud of, but anyway, I wanted to write something that came from me. So the necklace came from a newspaper article that I read in 2012 and um, stuck with me uh, seven years until I started writing it, uh, a, a book based on it. And Killer Story is based on um, all the people that I know who are journalists in their 20s. And it just amazes me that all these folks in their 20s are so passionate about it. They're going into kind of a dying field in a lot of ways. People are really losing a lot of jobs. And it just reminded me of myself when I was in my 20s and going into writing and 
you know, my dad wanted me to go to law school and, you know, it was, uh, you know, seemed like a crazy kind of endeavor. So, uh, so, you know, that came from my heart too. Um, so that's an overview of all, you know, sort of the, as I see it, you know, looking back on it, like the flow of my life and how it went writing life. Well, when you're writing a book, it's all you. When you're writing for television and all, it's much more about, you know, it's a writer's room. It isn't the finished product is not necessarily going to be all you. In fact, probably it's unlikely that it would be all you. Right. right. I mean, I enjoyed writing House for sure. And he's a fun character. But, you know, he's, you know, he's not the character I would have come up with necessarily out of my head. So it was great. And, you know, you learn the craft, which is great. I always just enjoyed the process of writing the outline and, and you know, having the action come to a, a peak right before the commercial. And then you, then you figure out the, the flow of it to get the action to come to a peak before the next commercial and just how everything works. And if you have five characters in the show, you have to make sure each of your main characters appears in each act. Uh, an act, the definition of an act in television is the interval between commercials. So you have to make sure... You have to make sure that each character appears in each act. At least that was the way it was when I was writing House. Now, I've noticed that um, some shows like, um, I think it's called All of Us, the one about the three triplets. I think that's the name of it. They don't show the main, the, uh, one of the three characters in each act. Like some of the rules of TV have changed over the years. Anyway, so I just loved the process of it and I loved, uh, I loved doing it. But boy, when you have something from your, that you're writing yourself and, and uh, you know, it's all, you know, it's all your passion and you write at home or write in a coffee shop about what you care most about. Um, it's just a special kind of a thing. And I feel grateful, you know, to have the opportunity to do that. I want to come back to your story, but I'm going to digress for just a moment because I have to ask you, does long form television, which is, you know, not, I mean, theoretically not written for with commercials, let's say, I know Netflix is changing its model and all the rest of it. But, you know, if you're, if you're writing, television that in theory is streaming without commercials does that make a difference because now you don't have those segmented acts it's a really great question uh i think it's made some difference and um and to some extent has not made a difference so what i mean is that you know i think the human brain or at least the way we are in this country with all the different media that we have you know we really like that rise and fall you know, we really like things to come to a crescendo and then it's confusing and then it goes down or whatever, then it comes up and down and up. You really want that kind of excitement. And to some to some extent, the way shows go with commercials kind of mimics the way our, our brains like to hear stories and process stories. So when I watch a Netflix show, I will see that there are the big turns, you, you know, just like there are in network shows. So for instance, in network shows, they teach you that at the halfway mark of an hour long show, that's your biggest change like ideally there's a twist that throws the whole world on its head that changes everything everything starts anew and uh, i've noticed that with netflix shows and other shows there often is a huge turn at the at the midpoint of that hour um so i think that they are similar i don't think it's quite as rigorous i mean uh there might be one less big twist in a netflix show um but they still have that same you know, pattern of twists. And when I teach TV writing, uh, which I do at UCLA Extension uh, once a year, I always tell the students, even if they're writing a show that they envision on Netflix, even if they're writing a show that they're gonna use as a spec script and not have any commercial breaks in it, I always say, write it with the act breaks as though it were a uh, network show. 
because I found that the students that do that come up with better scripts than the students who don't do that. Um, That's so, interesting. Oh, yeah, I like that. I it noticed, right, I them. haven't it been to a movie theater. Them. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it just reminds them that they have to have a twist. Sorry about that, yeah. No, finish up. I, I've confused everything. Go back and say that again. My apologies. No, I, just, I was just going to say, it just reminds them that they have to make those twi have those twists. Oh, okay. I can see what your point is there. I, I found myself, we went to see the sequel to Avatar, and I found that three hours of uninterrupted storytelling was too long. I mean, aside from the bathroom break issue, you know, which really afflicted a lot of people, and, and I was all right with that, um, but I mean, I sat through it, in other words, but I, you know, after a while, when it's that long, it begins to feel like there's unnecessary material there, you know, um, and my mind begins to wander, and then I got a little impatient, you know, like, whatever, and I'm, I, you know, I wonder, I hadn't really thought about that, that maybe all of us have kind of a, um, instinct about how long we can follow a story there are people who read really big books for example at the store you know and then there are people who reject them just looking at them regardless of what the content might be that's not the question you know they look at like a 600 or whatever page book and they go i you know they don't want to put that much time in it and well, i go back to, it to a large extent especially if it's like an amateur sleuth mystery or if it's kind of a lighter mystery or just you know mystery like I might enjoy it, but I'm not going to want to read it for 500 pages. It just doesn't have that weight for me. You know, there's going to be five, you know, suspects and then the killer. And, and I just don't want to invest the 500 pages in it. It just doesn't have it. But for other kinds of things like a family epic, a family saga, you know, then I might be happy to read uh, a 500, 600 page book. I was surprised at how many copies of War and Peace we sold during the pandemic, for example, even Moby Dick, you know, where people did that. But it reminds me of Agatha Christie, who, you know, her ideal book was 130 pages long, and her publisher made her path. She wanted people to be able to read it between dinner and bed because of her complicated plots. And her publisher, you know, the way books work, you have signatures with so many pages in them, and her publisher made her had them to the point because otherwise they had all this wasted paper so they grew somewhat in size just in order to fill that but I often thought she was kind of onto it you know that she she envisioned holding people's attention for what a couple of hours you know maybe three depending on how fast they read and they could keep the entire complicated plot in their head because they weren't putting it down and you know going back to it there were no interruptions um, yeah, which... I think that's great. I like short books. I read uh, Antoine Wilson's book. Um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the name, but it was about 50,000 words and it was beautiful. It was just a great read. Yeah, so. well, we published Drive, you know, which was not even that long. And I guess it was maybe it was 50,000, maybe just over 50,000 words, really, in theory, a novella. But it was absolutely perfect. The New York Times, Marilyn Stassi reviewed it and just said, James Salas has written a perfect book, you know, just the right length, the whole bit. Anyway, let's talk about Killer Story, because you have, um, I'm, I'm finding all of a sudden, Matt, we've talked to other people about this, that podcasters are becoming regular sleuths. You know, back in the 90s, when that whole woman sleuth movement was going on, you know, Sue Grafton and Sarah Peretsky, Marsha Muller, all those people. And, you know, woman after woman was a private investigator, usually had to have either a family member or a boyfriend in actual law enforcement, because, you know, you can't arrest people if you're 
a private investigator and all, but it was the whole thing. And now it seems to me that the thing is podcasting and especially true crime podcasting. Have you, you know, said, I mean, it's true in the real world, but have you, did you tap into that for this story, that idea? Well, I think so. I've been interested in that genre ever since serial, really. And it's, uh, you know, there are many genres in podcasting, obviously, but one of them is the genre of like the young idealistic woman who's going to right wrongs about this um, past murder, about this cold case murder. And Serial was the first uh, one that I'm familiar with in that genre. And since then, there have just been a lot of them. Uh, Cincinnati Inquirer did one called, I think, Accused. Um, there's one called Convicted. Uh, I've, I've listened to probably 10 of them. They're, they're just all over the place. And um, I mean, it's a great genre. It's very successful. And I think it's um, you have a great heroine in these books. And it's they're great stories. Um, so uh, another thing I find interesting, and this is partly because I've, I've been on some podcasts as a guest recently, you know, just how many of the, the, um, the podcasts have as the, as, as the host, somebody who experienced some terrible uh, crime in their, in their childhood, um, their aunt was killed, God forbid, or something else like that happened. Um, so I think that's another element. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I tapped into for sure. Uh, podcasts are extremely successful. It still amazes me that people were talking 10 or 15 years ago that radio was dead. <laughs> I know. Isn't yeah. that the truth? It's absolutely come back. I just yeah. find it hilarious. But, you know, anyone can be the, the entry level to be a podcaster. All you have to do is really have a microphone. And, you know, it's, it's much, much harder to publish a book than it is to set up a podcast for sure. And right. uh, I think some people go into it to make money. Some people go into it for personal reasons. Um, and, you know, I have to admit that I sometimes wonder how people have time to listen to so much, but um, I don't live, I don't, my life does not involve commuting, for example. And I can certainly understand that if you were, you know, like in Los Angeles, for example, or, you know, and you were doing a significant amount of driving, that a podcast would be, you know, engrossing in, in a, an excellent way to absorb whatever it was you wanted, whether it was just storytelling or whether it was, you know, unraveling crime or emotion or some such thing. But you're right. It's sort of replacing the car radio or remember the tapes where we used to have, you know, the eight track tapes and then we had the CDs and all. And, you know, we're back to we're back to podcasting. And I wonder if that I wonder if audiobooks, I hadn't thought about that. I wonder if audiobooks has kind of conditioned people to listen to stories again like the radio once did. Right. Yeah, I think definitely uh, audiobooks and uh, podcasts have gone hand in hand. Now, it's tremendous when you're commuting. I People in LA where I live were always complaining about the traffic and cussing right. about it like that. So what are you talking about? You know, listen to a podcast. You know, what's the problem? I have a nice time. Get in the car, listen to podcasts. It's great. And I really have found, as I've gotten more and more into podcasts, even when I don't commute, I listen to them. I commute when I, I listen to them when I'm washing dishes. I listen to them when yeah. I'm um, when I'm cooking. I listen to them when I'm folding laundry. I mean, if you're a dedicated podcast listener as I am, you can manage to to knock in, you know, about a half an hour, an hour of a podcast just while you're doing things chores at home. So. No, I've been really intrigued. Um, my husband tapped into that and decided when during Zoom when it just started that there was no reason why he couldn't take the soundtracks and turn them into podcasts. So he's up to. I looked today. 204,100 downloads. Um, wow. I know. 
um, you know, because each one of these soundtracks is, um, he's got equipment and the whole bit. I mean, they're not great podcasts in the sense of, you know, fabulous production and all the rest of it. And you have to listen to me droning on and on most of the time, <laughs> sometimes it's Patrick um, or another staff member. But but what it does say is that um, that people want to listen to these conversations um, in a way that doesn't tie them up if they were sitting in front of a computer or you can actually watch them all on YouTube. You know, if you have a smart TV, you can take this and you can watch it. And that frees up, you know, people in a different way. So I love the idea that that we, you know, what we're doing can be experienced by people in several formats, some yeah. on computers, some on podcasts, some, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I, I think all that's a real boon to storytelling, don't you? I do. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely fabulous. Just, um, yeah, it's a whole new form of storytelling that people can do and enjoy. And, and it's great. It's really but fun. it's also a new form of investigation. And that relates to killer story in that, you know, journalism, print journalism anyway, has obvious serious constraints. I was really sad today the Washington Post had to shed some people because, I mean, it's been kind of shielded up until now by Bezos, but and his money, and to his credit, he hasn't seemed to interfere with the post since since he bought it. But I guess the economic realities are at the moment everybody is shedding. And here's my question: If everybody is shedding jobs, all these tech, all the rest of it, why can't I hire anybody? <laughs> I want to know where. How is it that we have this huge sudden new job pool, and yet it's virtually impossible for who many businesses to hire anybody? Well, that's a good question. I guess it is a good question. You know, I think it's one that we can pursue. But but my point is that if Petra, as a journalist, is having a hard time, which she is clearly, because why would you write about her if it was all easy? Um, then podcasting seems to me kind of a natural outlet for her. Definitely. She's in a situation where uh, she got laid off from her very first newspaper job out of college down in Oxford, Mississippi. And that was because they were just uh, got rid of 20% of their reporters, you know, first in, first out, or last in, first out. Right. And then she goes up to Bozeman, Montana. She gets a job at a, at a newspaper up there. Same thing happens. She gets laid off. She goes to Seattle to an internet startup that's going to revolutionize how journalism happens online. And the startup dies. And then she gets this um, uh, really kind of lucky break. I mean, she pushes for it, but it's also some uh, luck on her part. She gets a really nice job at Boston's second biggest newspaper, which in the book I call the Clarion, uh, and and not the name of the real second biggest newspaper. Right. Um, so she gets this job at the Clarion, and then she thinks she's doing great. She goes in to see her boss. She thinks the boss is going to tell her how great she's doing, and the boss is like laser uh, laser off, and she's just crushed. And she just comes up with, as you say, this is how she's going to save her job. She like comes up with this this idea that she's going to investigate the cold case murder of somebody that she actually knew, uh, uh, a Harvard freshman who was killed, who she actually knew when, when the girl was only uh, 14. And, and she, the Harvard freshman who died, was who was killed, was famous because she was an alt-right YouTuber. She's quite well-known. She got you know a trillion downloads. So... Uh, so she she convinces this guy to, to let her you know work as a podcaster and this is she's trying to save her career she feels like she's been laid off you know four times she's going to have a stink on her from all that you, you know newspapers aren't hiring anyway I mean the statistics on newspapers are crazy I read this one and it just amazed me I had to read it twice 
Two newspapers die in, in the United States every single week. Two newspapers. We've lost a quarter of our newspapers, and in a few years, it will be a third. Um, 28,000 journalists got laid off uh, last uh, year. Um, my, uh, my friend who works at the newspaper in uh, Glens Falls, when he started, there were 50 reporters. Now they're down to eight. So, you know, she's like, she has this passion for journalism. She loves it. When she was a kid, some things happened that made her understand the power of journalism for good and how it can really be good. And that's just her dream. It's a dream she's had this whole time. Um, but when this happens, she gets you know laid off again and again and again, which by the way, I'll just uh, digress here and say, as a TV writer, we all get laid off. So I've been laid off in the past 20 years, four times. And sometimes it's for something just the show gets canceled. And sometimes it's new head writer comes in and hires all his own people. Whatever the reason, you know, it's kind of affects you pretty deeply. So that's uh, when I speak about coming from my heart, like Petra just comes from my heart. I know how she's feeling. I know where she's coming from. So, um, so now she's got this opportunity to rescue her career with podcasting, with this, with the investigating the cold case. And when it doesn't go well at first, she has to do anything she can to make it go well. And sometimes the things that she does to make it go well are not very morally good things, I'll say. They're not at all things that you would want somebody to do. And um, partly it comes from really wanting to solve this murder because she loved this girl. And partly it becomes she's just trying to rescue her career. And her mind, she, you know, her, her soul gets all confused about how she is. And that's her story in the, in the book. And that's really, you know, the book story about the journey of this girl who starts out, young woman who starts out idealistic and then maybe gets brought down kind of by the vicissitudes of life. And, you know, not to spoil too much, but she will get redeemed at the end, but she has a definite journey to, to follow. Well, she's highly motivated, you know, which, you know, you'd have to be um, to do all that. And, you know, it's an interesting juggle for the reader because, you know, she's the protagonist, the, you know, point of view character and so forth. And you want to root for her all the way through. But, um, you know, if, if her actions become somewhat questionable, then the reader has to suffer some of the same moral quandary or dilemma. You know, it's like Miss Marple who, you know, never put a foot wrong. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting part of modern crime fiction is that, you know, characters are not, certainly not all black and white, um, but, you know, beset by the same sorts of things that the readers are, um, which, you know, perhaps creates a, a bond. We had an author that we published at Poison Pen Press before we sold it, who was a newspaper man to his absolute core. And, it, you know, he was laid off eventually from the Arizona Republic and went to Seattle and worked there for a long time. But again, and I thought, you know, it must be awful to be working in basically a dying industry and maybe not be able to make the leap to podcasting or whatever new form. And then, you know, you read about, well, I, I don't know if everybody does, but you read about the George Santos, you know, this absolutely insane, fabulous that, and you recognize that the little local newspaper were the only people who looked into him and realized right. that he was in fact, you know, I mean, please, resume embellishment. I mean, that's like a, Anyway, you know, right? It's an amazing story about him because, like you say, and mo most people don't know this, but like you say, his small, that small town newspaper got a lot of the story. You know, they found out the guy was a, everything. They found out the guy yeah. was a bum, he's a liar, everything, all this stuff. 
And like, they got like most of what the New York Times got in their big scoop. It was crazy. And people just didn't pay attention. You know, like bad enough newspapers are dying, but the ones that are still here, yeah. you should at least pay attention to them. I agree. You know, I mean, it, it made me realize that, um, you know, that the newspapers have lost their power too, because probably the local people were busily, you know, on Twitter or, or, you know, watching who knows, but you know, what's terrifying is that neither party, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats did any vetting of this guy. Yeah. You know, it was up to this little local newspaper. And that's one reason it's so tragic that we're losing all these, you know, local, um, papers that actually did local stories, you know, that looked at people like him. Now he's a national story, but, you know, originally he wasn't. And if people had paid any attention, he wouldn't have become a national story because presumably the Republicans would have recognized they shouldn't be running him. Um, yep. And, you know, so it's harming our society on so many levels to be losing that. And I think it's one of the reasons, you know, that we're in such political chaos right now. Yeah, I have local sources we can trust. I agree. And uh, even the stories that might seem like they're a little bit boring, like school board meetings or zoning board meetings, they can be incredibly important. And you got to have the resources in place and, and the journalists in place so that when a really important school board or zoning board story does happen, a story that, you know, zoning board involving bribery or a school board involving um, book burning or a censorship, you really have the people that can really explain what's going on. And uh, yeah, you got to have that infrastructure in place. Yeah, and rally community meetings and so forth. So, you know, I I keep hoping that, I mean, I, I realize that the economics of print journalism are difficult, but um, it would be great if there were a better respected better governed you know and unfortunately it's much much harder to bet any of the stuff that goes off on over the air because newspapers were edited that's the other thing they had actual people there you know who assigned stories looked at stories you know edited stories took responsibility and yeah. you know even with even with the podcasting we're talking about if there's no editor you know, there's then the podcaster is only accountable to the to the podcaster and, you know, possibly the audience. But, you know, it's hard to you, you can't have the same confidence that. You yeah, have. I guess and, if I if I want to be optimistic, I would listen to uh, to our older son uh, who says that, um, you know, things are going to shake out eventually. So that journalism is going to be just as strong and just as powerful because the need to know these stories and the need to tell these stories, you know, is just as strong, you know, in the human uh, heart as it's always been. And it's going to, you know, it's going to work out because we need these things and it's going to work out and, and the economics will find a way the journalism will work out so the journalists can make money again. Um, so that's his, uh, that's his faith, both in technology and the future. So I, I try to hold on to that. I've heard other People uh, say that to a friend of mine who works for the Pew Research Foundation, um, who's a journalist. Anyway, I hope that uh, I hope that this optimism will be well founded. Uh, that's that's what I try to hold on to. Well, I do too. And maybe you know, a subscription model will really yes. help. We'll see if Elon Musk destroys Twitter or if he decides, you know, with the subscription model, it can go on. The other thing I think is that you know, the anonymity of online postings and discourse is really harmful. You know, I think. If, if you don't know who's responsible 
for whatever information or storytelling is going on. It makes it awfully easy for people to embrace anything they want. Um, so, you know, good for Petra that, um, you know, she's she actually has a mission, um, yes. you know, a dual mission, save her job or create a new job, whichever one, you know, on that path, but also solve this case that nobody has has solved. And cold cases generally aren't solved until somebody comes along and kicks it back into gear. They, you know, they sink under the weight of other cases. And it takes somebody like her, you know, to reinvigorate um, right. an investigation. Have you right. actually participated in anything like that or know anything firsthand about a cold case that someone who was not in law enforcement initially managed to solve? Trying to think. I don't think I have any friends that have uh, cracked a cold case exactly. No, uh, that's a good question. I'll probably think of one after we get off the air. <laughs> oh, that was it. Uh -huh. But, um, well, but what you said about, um, about you know, kickstarting, uh, you know, the investigation, getting things going again, that's one of Petra's, you know, main things. She says, okay, I may be putting out information out there that's maybe a little sensationalized and not quite exactly right. She said, but on the other hand, I'm getting, you know, millions of listeners and that's doing a lot of things. One is it's going to push the police into investigating again, uh, which they haven't been doing for the past two years. And also everybody's going to hear it and they're going to think of things that they forgot of three years ago. They're going to think when, when the girl was killed, they're going to think, you know, that night, you know, Petra's talking about this one guy, Schmo. And I'm remembering that night, I actually saw Schmo hanging out at a bar, you know, just a half a block away. So she's so that's how she rationalizes some of her behavior that isn't, you know, in, in some ways moral, is that, you know, what you just said, she's going to be able to kickstart that investigation. And it's going to be useful. And the, the truth is, there's truth in it. Like everything she says, every every um, justification she has for uh, questionable actions, you know, there's truth behind it, which, you know, I think is true of people in general, you know, no matter what we do when we act uh, in um, in not so good ways, you know, we can find some way to justify it. And there's there's a kernel of truth all the time. There are people who are actually using technology to crowdsource investigations outside the law. I can't remember the name of the guy that we had here, um, but... He, his example was there was some kind of a crime in Chicago. I can't remember if it was a hit and run or, you know, something where there were witnesses. Um, and most people have phones now and are, you know, oftentimes filming and all. And anyway, the, the, they couldn't find the guy or they couldn't identify him or something. And so this non-police guy took it upon himself to basically somehow or other communicate with all the people, you know, start up something and gradually information filtered in and gradually, you know, they found him, which I think yeah. is happening more and more, even with law enforcement is there. Well, look at the January 6th thing. I mean, you know, most of these people are being convicted by their own social media. You know, they all took their phones so they could, you know, film it or they appeared on other people's social media. And it was, we had a riot here in Scottsdale a while back. It was a smash and grab. And they caught everybody because, again, they were all, you know, either filming themselves or filming each other or posting it in places. And so it wasn't that difficult to eventually identify who they were. And, you know, first rule of criminals should always be now, leave your phone. <laughs> Do not take your phone <laughs> when you go. But so what Petra does is really, you know, other people are, are doing that. It might, it might be um, 
putting the cat among the pigeons might might feel like it's unethical or exposing people, but the truth is it seems to be happening all the time now. Yeah, I think so. I and think we've uh, all given up privacy. You know, I mean, as soon as you have a smartphone, basically your privacy is gone. Yes. Yes. I think that's a battle that uh, we're definitely losing in our society, the the uh, the uh, effort to keep our privacy. That one I don't think will turn around. Um, yeah, there have been, you know, I don't, I'm trying to think what mystery novels have been written on the subject of crowdfunding, but uh, certain uh, crowdsourcing murders, but um Certainly, uh, there have been some TV shows that have tried it. A lot of TV episodes have been based on yeah. it. And true crime. crime. There's been some true crime. Whoever this guy was actually had a fairly large nonfiction bestseller. You know, oh, cool. I cool. can't think of his name. But um, the only thing that really scared me is that when he was doing the event, he was encouraging people there to do the same thing. And I wanted to say, you know, no, that's really, really not a good idea. And most of the time, the police won't really welcome your contribution, even if you think they will. But there we go. So, Matt, what are you working on now? I'm assuming because uh, Killer Story, once again, pointing out, is already out. Um, you must. Are you at work on a new book? Yep. Yep. I'm working on three things. Uh, one is a uh, is a book that actually my uh, agent is going out with uh, next week uh, called Brainstorm, and um, that's a uh, new book about a, uh, a young woman who's a brilliant neurologist who goes out on a blind date and uh, gets kidnapped. And it turns out that the bad guys are after a weapon of mass destruction that she herself accidentally created during her Ooh. research as a neuroscientist. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. And I'm starting on my, my next novel. And also, uh, I just wrote a pilot for NBC. Me and a, a showrunner named Charlie Craig just got hired to write a pilot for NBC. So we just um, completed that. And... Then I just got hired to write a Hallmark uh, mystery movie. So I'm writing that. It's based on the book, uh, A Dark and Stormy Night by Julia uh, Fleming. Um, so those are those are my three projects right now. Wow. Writers are just, I mean, you know, it's part of it, is it a constant hustle? I mean, do you yeah. sympathize with Petra in the sense that, you know, you're, you're always sort of looking for work? <laughs> Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it's nice to be a novelist because you have so much control over it. You know, I can start a novel anytime. I, I have started one after Brainstorm. That's my fourth project, but I didn't want to talk for too long. But um, no, it's, it's uh, well, for instance, the NBC pilot. That's an interesting one because uh, NBC, you know, paid us, you know, a good, a good amount of money to write it. But the funny part is NBC hires a lot of people to write pilots and most of them they don't shoot. So you get really into it and you write the best pilot you can possibly imagine. I really think it's great. But then if I look at the numbers, and NBC has actually said some things that make me think we have a good shot. But if I look at the numbers, it's like, okay, they actually shoot one out of every nine pilots that they pay somebody to write. And then after they shoot the pilot, only one out of every two makes it to the air. So actually, when we write this pilot that we're so excited about and I think is great, Okay, it's a one out of 18 shot if I go strictly by the numbers. I think that's the accurate thing. So it's like every project that you write, you put all your passion into it and then you let it go. Hallmark is a little bit different. Hallmark, I think, you know, they maybe shoot like, I don't know, four out of every five movies that they hire people right. to write. No, I can imagine it's safer, but I, that leads me to ask you if in fact you write a pilot and it doesn't fly, can you take the core idea and turn it into a book? Are you allowed to do that or do they own it? 
Uh, you can, you can actually. And that's certainly something that I'm going to look at for sure. Absolutely. So it might not be wasted, you know, if you, if you create it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand the whole, you know, movie TV thing, all that. There's so much waste involved and so much money involved and so many I, stories that never go anywhere. You know, I used to feel that way, but then I thought about it a different way, which is that in any business, medical technology, um, um, computer, whatever, 5% of projects actually really happen. So if, 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 bio, if a biotech firm spends a million dollars on, you know, a thousand different projects, you know, only 50 of them are going to work out, you know, one out of every 20 is going to work out. So you could call that waste or it's just R&D. Most times it doesn't work. You know, if you have, you know, 20 medical studies of people trying to cure some disease, 19 of them aren't going to do any good. And then the 20th one, you know, might do good. And so that's how I feel about like the TV business. Yeah, you could say, well, it's kind of weird. They're, they're ordering 18 scripts or 20 scripts just to get, you know, one show out of them. But it's like, it's hard to do R&D. And that, that's what this is, research and development. And, um, and uh, yeah, they, they, they all, a lot of scripts sound good. And then you actually get the scripts and they're not good, you know? And so then you find that one diamond. Um, so yeah, I, I, I used to think of it as waste. And actually a lot of people in my business view it as waste and they say, oh, we need to figure out a better way to develop pilots, develop TV shows. And in the 20 years that I've been, you know, in the TV business, um, they've been saying that for 20 years. And sometimes they try other things and it never does any better than what they had already. So I think that's just a fact of human life. You know, uh, you know, you have 20 ideas and in that sort of field and one of them turns out good. Well, R&D is a reasonable analogy. I can see, you know, that is a constructive way to look at it. If we had time, I would talk to you about House. But since, I mean, what an amazing show. Did you write all of it? Were you on it the whole time? I wrote for, for two years. I wrote for House. and wow. really, really, really brave show, I thought. Yeah. Um, talk about a flawed main character. That definitely had one. Definitely so. But of course, you also had Hugh Laurie who could make it, you know, feasible. Jacob, come and join us before we run out of time and let us know if there are any questions. We may have exhausted the whole audience. Who knows? There you are. Yeah, there's a few questions here. Um, how did your uh, writing process and or publishing experience change between The Necklace and The Killer Story? Uh you know, I don't know that it changed that much. My writing process was, you know, the same as it always is. I just wake up, take a bicycle ride to the coffee shop, uh, talk to some friends, write for three hours, come home, have lunch, run some errands, and then spend another couple hours writing. And it's just what I did when I was, uh, before I, you know, before the necklace was sold. And I think that's true with any, you know, successful uh, writer who's, 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 you know, sold a bunch of books or whatever. They just keep doing what they do. You know, they don't get distracted. I'm sure Robert Crace, you know, it has the same essentially writing patterns that he did when he was writing his first book. So I don't think, uh, I don't, I can't think of, I can't offhand think of any ways that having been published, having had that pub novel published made my writing process different on the second one. Okay, great. Uh, what kind of research did you do for this novel particularly? Um, is there anything that you read into or... For Killer Story, uh, I think I mentioned that I have uh, several friends in, in their 20s who are getting into right. the field. 
So I talked to them extensively about what, uh, what their jobs were like, what their first job is out of college and what their career path is, um, you know, during the first 10, 20 years of their career. Uh, and uh, so that was one sort of research. Another sort of research that I did was um, the main character of Killer Story is a, um, a first-generation immigrant. Uh, and unlike most first-generation immigrants, she kind of goes for the for the stars. Like most, I'm, I'm, this is a gross generalization, but most first-generation immigrants like try to get that job as a as a sanitation worker or a police officer, you know, or, or a teacher, you know, something solid and middle class. And then it's their kids maybe who reach for the stars. But this was a different character. She reaches. So that's based on on uh, a young woman I know who who is following that life pattern. Um, uh, in terms of my murder victim, who's an alt-right uh, uh, extremist, I watched a lot of YouTubes of alt-right extremists and also researched how people get sucked into that kind of thing, whether it's QAnon or, or to be honest, it's just my opinion, ISIS, but whatever it is, how they get sucked into this kind of extremism. Uh, and then with podcasts, I just listened to a trillion of them. Oh, and I did talk to some podcasters to find out about the economics of podcasting, like how much you get for each ad, you know, for every 30 second ad, what that's worth and, and just what that career path was like for podcasters. So uh, I had two podcaster friends who helped me. So that was all fun research. I mean, this was, a, this was an easy one. And as I say, Petra herself was easy to research in some ways, just because I had some of the same life experiences as, uh, as she had, uh, has. Um, so those are some of the different ways that I, I learned what was going on. Great. Um, do, did you have a favorite show that you've worked on over these years? Um, you know, it's a great question. Yeah. And here's the thing that I've noticed when I talk to other TV writers or when I read other TV writers, and this is really, really fascinates me. They will never talk what they think is the best show they worked on. What will they, they will talk about is the best collaborative experience. So you, you'll notice it now too, when you, when you read um, interviews of TV writers and I believe movie writers too, certainly TV writers, you'll read, they'll say, man, I love working on this show. We had such a great team. We had such a great time in the writer's room and everybody's ideas were listened to and you felt free to say anything you wanted and you weren't worried that it would sound stupid. And, you know, we worked together and, you know, we hung out. It was just, it was just great. And the actors were great and the director, everything was good. And that's what they'll talk about, you know, and they won't talk so much about that was really a show that meant a lot in our society. That was just a really meaningful show that has that show had some really great stories or loved the character. I mean, they'll talk about that, but not at all the first thing or even the second thing. I mean, so I thought that was really, really interesting. So if I were to answer like what were my favorite shows that I've worked on, it was really the shows where I just really like working with people that would be. Um, I mean, some of the, some of my favorites were Pretty Little Liars, uh, Women's Murder Club, uh, a show called Peacemakers, where I met the guy that I'm, I met the guy 15 years ago that I'm now co-writing the NBC pilot with. So these relationships last a long time. Um, you know, I liked House and I liked Law and Order and these other shows. But if you were to ask me, you know, my favorite shows, really, it's the one where I just had the, the most fun. And um, that would probably be be maybe Women's Murder Club or Peace, you know, be one of these shows. Yeah, that's a really nice answer, you know, where I had the most fun, right? Yeah. I love that. Not where yeah. I made the most money or not where we won an award or something, but where I had the best experience. Good for you. I like yeah, that. had the most fun and really met people that I really liked and have stayed in contact with and are lifelong friends. And 
and all that. Anything else, Jacob? Yeah, we have one more here. Um, Matt, how do you get your brain to focus on a novel, a TV pilot, and a Hallmark movie without getting it all confused? <laughs> well, I can do two projects at once. Uh, when I try to do three at once, my brain just fries. I'm just cranky at night. Uh, my wife knows that I'm doing three at once, and she knows. And I really try to keep it down to two. And if I keep it down to two, um, my goal is to work on one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Um, in practice, that doesn't always work. In practice, I'll get so obsessed by one that I just got to keep doing it and I can't stop. And I just do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it till I come to the end of a draft. And then come to the end of a draft. Now I can put it aside. I'll give it to a producer or a friend, depending on the project, producer or friends to read. Um, but then I'll start working on the other one, you know, like crazy, you know, maybe for a week or two or whatever the period is. So I guess that's how I'm a serial, mono I'm a serial monogamist with my, with my projects, I guess. And if I have two, then I just go, you know, just one and then the others. How I do it in practice. Um, so it's my just theory, my theory is different. I'm, I'm sorry, but my theory is different. My theory, as I think about it out loud, my theory is one in the afternoon and one in the morning, but my practice is, is one and then the other. Love it. Well, all right. Thank you, Matt. It's really been a fascinating conversation. Nathan, I know you wrote House. I'm likely to devil you because I have many unanswered questions about House. Jacob, did you ever watch House? I did. I loved it. It's a great show. I could have rewatched it again. It's been a while. But... I know there were some and, you know, people like Olivia, whatever her name is, has gone on. You know, there were characters in House that have gone on to do interesting things. I thought the moral dilemma around her and her genetic disease was in many ways the most painful of, of all. And the, and the one where I empathized or sympathized least with House. I would mm. myself not want to have known if I if I were that person. So I was quite annoyed, but there we go. Right. Anyway, um, thank you, Matt. It was wonderful. Jacob, lovely to see you. I'll see you tomorrow because we have live events at the store tomorrow. But Matt, it's really a pleasure to join you on thank Zoom. You. And I, I hope the snow won't destroy your event in Boston or that you can reschedule it. Thank you very much, Barbara. I enjoyed talking with you. And, you thanks. and if not, you can direct people towards, I'll, I'll send you the podcast link and the video links. So you know, you can direct people that way. Okay. Yeah, that'll work. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. A hundred percent of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.